This morning we're going to consider what I consider one of the most important areas of study. And unfortunately, I think it is neglected in the body of Christ today. And as a result, I think a lot of believers are deficient in their understanding of a most foundational area of study. In fact, in the course that I'll be teaching, all of what we'll be talking about today kind of is the underlying and basic foundation that we will develop in the course. So I titled the course, Biblical Foundations for All Things, and the ultimate foundation of all things is God himself. So we're going to consider that. I like what Ryrie says. He says, kind of summarizes the situation. In the midst of the knowledge explosion of the past half century, it is astounding how many have forgotten that the greatest knowledge they could possess is the knowledge of God. Now, this is very important, and a lot of Christians assume they know God. And if you notice on the outline sheet, one of the principles that we need to understand is we really do not know God apart from his revelation. I'm going to stress that at the end if we get that far today. There's a concept of the incomprehensibility of God, and I'll give you a lot of verses that indicate that, which means basically we cannot know God. We cannot just pray and know God and understand him. It takes his revelation to understand who he really is. So I'm going to stress that, and we'll look at that right off right off the bat here. And what Ryrie says, that this is something that is neglected, forgotten, and not oftentimes dealt with even in the body of Christ. So we want to make sure that we take a look at that this morning. A.W. Tozier says, The gravest question... Before the church is always God himself. And the most portentous fact about any man is not what he at a given time may say or do, but what he is in his deep heart conceives God to be like. In other words, that is the gravest question. What in your mind do you perceive and conceive of in terms of God? Now, apart from God's revelation, we always go wrong in our understanding of God. So it's important that we look at this, and I'm going to stress the importance of that. So the study of God is more important than any area that you can think of. If you're science-minded, it's more important than a space program or any great project that any country or nation may endeavor to pursue. Study of God is more important than supercomputers, and we are heavily reliant on computers today. In fact, our culture would uh, probably go into the Stone Age if we lost computer capability. Study of God is more important than all of that. More important than cancer research or research in any area of medicine or any area of, of health. Study of God is more important than a new science or anything that comes up that's new like nanotechnology or any technology that is arising today. These are not cutting edge. These, well, they're cutting edge in terms of science, but in terms of reality, study of God is more important than any of those. And you can come up with a longer list. These are mainly areas primarily in science and perhaps an area of medicine there as well. So this is extremely important 
because it's going to control everything else that you believe and how you believe affects how you live. We'll get into each of those individually. So let's take a look at why this area is so important and I'm hoping we can get into the area of God's incomprehensibility to kind of stress also the importance of what we need to do in order to have a biblical perspective of who God is. In the flesh, on our own, apart from revelation, every concept of God that we have is wrong. Every concept that comes from the sin nature is distorted. It's not real. It's not reality. So we want to know the one true God of the Bible. So all, basically to start off with, all unbiblical systems have a distorted view of God. And it's probably most evident today in our culture in the whole area of Islam. And you know, because of their concept of God, it results in some of the things that we are faced with in terms of the whole terrorist scene. They have a distorted view of God. Allah is not Yahweh. Allah is a different God. He's not a God of the Bible. So we want to take a look at what the Bible teaches concerning God. So it's important, first of all, because of the danger of idolatry. Idolatry is worshiping a God that is not the true God. That's the essence of idolatry. So you, if you have a distorted view, and by the way, all of us have to some degree a distorted view. None of us have a pure understanding or a complete, that's the incomprehensibility of God, complete understanding of God. So we need to continually be refining and renewing our understanding, renewing our minds to have a clear and a biblical concept of God. Now, God takes that into account, and if we sincerely desire to know him and are sincerely in his word to understand him, uh, God basically overlooks our imperfect view of, of him. But, again, the importance is because of the danger of idolatry. So, any concept of God that is not biblical is essentially worshiping a God that is not the God of the Bible. And one of the fundamental areas are the Ten Commandments that God gave not only to Moses, but the children of Israel. What are the starting point of the Ten Commandments? Basically, worshiping Yahweh, the one true God that brought Israel out, came out of Egypt, and God revealed himself to the children of Israel on Mount Sinai. Now, there was another other revelation of God, but he gave a more detailed, a more complete revelation of himself. And based on that, the first commandment basically says that we are to worship Yahweh exclusively. And from the context of the Israelites, where did they come out of? What was the culture that they came out of? It was a religious culture. came out of Egypt. Egypt was polytheistic. In fact, they got, had a God everywhere, a God of all kinds of makings of their own. They believed in gods behind all of the elements of nature. They worshipped the sun because they believed that there was a sun God behind the sun. They worshipped the Nile, so God strikes the Nile, turns it into blood. In fact, the Nile is like the uh, 
backbone or the spinal column of, of Egypt, according to Egyptian thinking. So there was a high regard for the Nile. It was the lifeblood of the nation. Children of Israel brought out from all of that. In fact, the ten plagues, all of those plagues were a polemic against the gods of the Egyptians to show that they had no power, but that Yahweh was sovereign and more powerful over all of the gods of the Egyptians. So God says, you shall worship no other gods except me, is what God says. In other words, exclusive worship of Yahweh. So we need to understand who is Yahweh? What does the Bible teach concerning the nature of who God actually is? So the first commandment starts off with that exclusive worship of Yahweh. Secondly, it speaks of any temptation to worship anything other than Yahweh or perhaps even adding to uh, to Yahweh other gods as the Egyptians did. They kept adding gods. And the second commandment says that uh, not, don't do that. That's idolatry. That's idolatrous. Now this is basic, this is fundamental. All of you understand that. So the first two commandments deal with the worship of God and excluding all others. Thirdly, we're not to use his name in vain. His name, in fact, a name in Scripture is not just a label. A name in Scripture basically attaches meaning, it attaches significance. A name represents the whole person. So when you distort the name or use the name in uh, a way that's unbiblical or the use of his name in vain is the commandment. If you are not to do that, you are distorting the nature and person of Yahweh. So he's a personal God. So we have the third commandment emphasizes the same thing, a concentration on the one true God of the Bible. In fact, even the fourth commandment, you should worship the God God as he instructs in the detail that he gives. And the fourth, fourth commandment deals with the worship of the Sabbath, on the Sabbath. So Sabbath worship is specified for the nation of Israel in order to guide them along the lines of exclusive worship of Yahweh. And he gives detail concerning that worship. In fact, it's very detailed in the Old Testament. So right off the bat, one of the most fundamental areas of Old Testament thought and theology is, and it begins with the worship of Yahweh exclusively. Now you might say, well, I don't have idols, I don't worship idols, but I like what Tozer says, but basically he's talking about Ways that you and I may be and sometimes fall short in terms of our worship. And in falling short, we enter an area of idolatry. Let me read what he says. Among the sins to which the human heart is prone, hardly any any other is more hateful to God than idolatry. For idolatry is at bottom a libel on his character. Then he goes on. The idolatrous heart assumes that God is other than he is. So he is equating idolatry with a false concept, an unbiblical concept of God. He goes on to say, it, it itself a monstrous sin. In other words, 
assuming that God is other than he is, it itself is a monstrous sin and substitutes for the true God one made after its own likeness. And that's what happens. We always create a God after our own image or our own desires apart from what the scriptures teach left to to ourselves. He concludes, the essence of idolatry is their entertainment of thoughts about God that are unworthy of him. So thoughts of God or concepts of God or images of God in our minds that are unworthy of him are idolatrous thoughts. So idolatry is not what you would envision in terms of these primitive cultures or these Old Testament Canaanites or Old Testament Egyptians. Idolatry is practiced here and now and oftentimes within the church itself. So because of the danger of idolatry, we need to have a clear concept of who God is. And we'll encourage you along those lines. So because of the danger, number one, of idolatry, it's important that you concentrate, renew your thinking, constantly looking at Scripture to understand what does Scripture teach concerning the nature of God. And we've been looking somewhat at that in the book of Hebrews. Jesus is God. And everything that the Bible teaches concerning Jesus Christ gives us basically an exposition of God. And that was the focus that we've looked at in the book of Hebrews and obviously other books as well. It's also important because of the emphasis of Scripture. The Bible is about Yahweh. It's all about God. It's about Christos, the Messiah. It's about Jesus Christ. So the emphasis of Scripture, the underlying teaching of all of the Bible, is who God is. Fundamental, A fundamental uh, principle of all of the Bible. So don't get bogged down in the genealogies. I mean, they're important and they have their place. Don't get bogged down in the historical details. Don't get bogged down in the secondary parts of the narrative but see what underlies all of the narratives and all of the passages and all of Scripture. The Scriptures emphasize who God is. And basic to Scripture is a revelation of God. Every chapter of the Bible, you might even say, every sentence of the Bible in some way tells us something about who God is. So ask yourself the question, what does this passage teach me about who God is? And check that with other passages that make a clear statement concerning the nature of God. So the emphasis of Scripture, beginning in Genesis 1-1, what does it start with? In the beginning, God. We could spend the rest of our hour just looking at that statement right there. Right off the bat, it speaks of the eternality of God. Before anything existed, God was there. So right off the bat, we have eternality at least, if not more. And then the second word in uh, the scriptures, in the Hebrew text, in the beginning is just one word, by the way, Bereshit. Then the second word is Elohim. And that is filled with all kinds of insight into the nature of Yahweh. In fact, Elohim eliminates virtually every other concept of God. 
It tells us Elohim with the im ending in Hebrew is what? A plural. So immediately it's telling us something. Now it's not explicitly teaching the Trinity, but it is explicitly giving us a concept that God is a plurality. In other words, God is not singularity. Again, that goes totally contrary to Islam. They believe in a singular Allah, God, that is not Elohim, not the God of the Bible. So right off the bat, from the very beginning, this this passage is loaded with insight into who God is, starts us off, and the rest of Scripture just adds to our understanding. So it leaves open the idea of a Trinitarian God and a God that is personal, a God that is transcendent. In other words, this God is separate from the creation. He was there before there was anything. In the beginning, God, it's an active God. It's a sovereign God. He created. In other words, he works. And apart from his working, there would be no universe and therefore no material realm, and therefore no science, and nothing related to all of these areas. So the emphasis of Scripture beginning with Genesis 1.1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. So everything that you can observe comes from the hand of God. So he is creator. He's not only eternal, he's not only a personal God, he's not only Trinitarian, He's not only an active God, he's not only an, uh, a transcendent God, separate and distinct, he's also an immanent God. In other words, a God, the other end of the spectrum of transcendency, God being separate and distinct, the other end of the spectrum is that God is involved and intimate with that that he created. That's God's immanency. He's not a deistic God. Deism sees God as transcendent, separate and distinct and apart from the creation, but it denies God's involvement and imminency. And throughout the rest of Genesis 1, we see God involved and creating a creature after his image and speaking with that creature and dealing with that creature. So we have an imminent God. We could go on. These are just the highlights of Genesis 1.1. If you read through the rest of the Bible, it just expands all of these ideas and give us more details concerning who Yahweh and who Elohim, in this context, actually is. So that's the beginning. All the way to Revelation 22.21. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. He's a gracious God. And that's the emphasis of the rest of Scripture as well. And that's how the book of Revelation, a book that speaks of the wrath of God, ends with the grace of God. So from the beginning, Genesis 1-1, to the end, we have a portrait, a picture, a revelation of the God of the Bible. And that's the God that we need to renew our thinking and continually refine who we understand God to be. The church today denies some of that revelation. There's a tendency in the church to overemphasize some aspects, and that's a danger that plays around with that idea of idolatry. So the emphasis of Scripture is a second reason why this whole area is important. So it's important, the danger of idolatry. Second, the emphasis of Scripture 
It's also the key to everything else that you believe, or the key to theology. It's a key to theology. If you have a distorted view of who God is, that lays a foundation for a distorted view of everything else, because everything else relates to who God is. So if your view of God is deficient, then all of your theology will end up deficient. So it's important that uh, you have a good understanding of who God is. I have a question. Yeah. Do not notice in the past that chain all sorts of things that man worships besides. That's mean, like that's things, what I. Yes. Uh, money. Well, I mean, yes. Would that go on the yes. Same yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, but sometimes we we almost think in our Christianized culture, actually less and less Christianized. We think, well, idolatry is so far away, and what Tozer does, and I think what the Bible does, is it says, no, it's right there, basically in the heart of even the believer, and it includes those other things that you mentioned as well. So it's a key to theology. And you might even say that every doctrine of Scripture that you can think of is affected and in fact intertwined with the doctrine of God. So when uh, your doctrine of God is affected, then it's going to affect every other doctrine, every other belief. So if you have a misconception in the area of what's called theology proper and systematic theology, that's going to have an effect on your doctrine of anthropology, what you conceive of concerning mankind. That's anthropology. So if you have a clear understanding of who God is, then that helps you to put in perspective a proper understanding of things like anthropology or pneumatology or Christology or even uh, dealing with things at the end, eschatology. All of these areas, these are just broad categories. We speak specifically of individual areas. But the point I'm making is every doctrine is affected. Yes, absolutely. So that would be. I'm saying it affects everything, and I'm just giving you some examples here in terms of theology. So it affects every doctrine, and certainly it affects your worldview, because you're looking at the world from a distorted perspective in terms of who God is. Every deviant system that you can conceive of, I gave you an example of Islam, but you can think of any Buddhism or any other system or belief system, that starts off without a biblical view of God is distorted. And you can trace the doctrines of those deviant systems, deviant religions, deviant cults, if you will, even though they say they believe in Jesus, the cults, and they're quasi-Christian, if you will, but their deviant elements are, as a result, they come from a different perspective concerning who God is. And you can trace it. You can go back and see, oh, they deny the Trinity, therefore these other things follow as a result, and they have all these issues that they come up with. For example, Mormonism. They might say that they believe in the deity of Christ, but it's a distorted deity of Christ. It's a deity of Christ that is no larger than mankind himself. So they have a distorted anthropology. They believe that you can become a god if you become a good Mormon and live your life out and do all these good works. Eventually, God will give you your planet, just like he gave Jesus Christ planet Earth. 
That's a distortion of reality and a distortion of the truth. But it comes from the beginning of the denial of the Trinity. And you can trace all of the deviant systems and deviant ideas to a deviant theology or a deviant idea or concept of who God is. Make sense? Also, every false doctrine. Now, this is false doctrine. You might even bring it closer to home. In other words, those things that are not biblical that some churches believe. In other words, the undermining of things like God's grace. Salvation relating to grace, I think, is... I don't... may, may not... You know, I wouldn't classify, for example, uh, Lordship salvation as a false doctrine, but I think it has some distortions in it that are not biblical. But when it crosses the line of false doctrine, you can trace it back to a misunderstanding of who God is. Make sense? So the bottom line here is all theology is affected by your view of who God is. So differences of theology, you can argue different points. A good balance is to go back and see how those differences might be related to who God is. And oftentimes you can resolve those theological differences within the fellowship even by looking and having a clear concept of who God is. So all theology is affected. So that's the starting point. That's the underlying foundation. Fourthly, this whole area of study is important because it's the foundation to all of living. What you believe eventually works itself out in how you live. So it's the foundation to living. Practice is based on what we conceive of in our mind, what we think in our mind concerning those fundamental beliefs. They work themselves out in how we live. Just one example. In the church, there, I think, an overemphasis on, on the love of God. Now, that's not bad. In fact, that's biblical. God is love, and we should emphasize the love of God. But in some circles, in some churches, and I would even venture to say perhaps even here at Grace Church, there are some that overemphasize the love of God to the neglect and sometimes even to the denial of the wrath of God. Both are true. And I'd say both are equally true. And one is not more important than the other. I would say both should be emphasized and taught the two ends of that spectrum of the nature of God. But if you overemphasize the love of God, that tends to work itself out in living in that a lot of times Christians that have that overemphasis have a less sensitivity, a less awareness of sin, and sometimes their lives reflect it and they live a more loose, quote, Christian life, if you will. So that's how it can be impacted in terms of living. Now that's just one example, but you can think of other examples as well where your foundation for living is affected by what you actually believe and in fact comes out of your world view. So beliefs affect living. And as a result, beliefs are a source of the problems that you can experience in your, not only your Christian walk, but in your life before the unbelieving world or in the world itself. What you believe is a source of problems. How does Paul correct the problems at the church at Corinth? If you study the book of Corinthians, he always goes back to some area of who God is, some aspect of the nature of God or something closely related to the nature of God. 
He doesn't use psychology. He doesn't use different techniques to correct the problems of Corinth. He goes back to theology, the concept of who God is. So your beliefs will be a source of any problem. So if you have a problem in your walk, in your Christian life, think through and go beyond just the problem and think, well, maybe I have a misunderstanding concerning who God is. Beliefs form your perspectives. In other words, your attitudes towards material things, towards the things of the world. Your beliefs will form your perspectives on the work environment. Your beliefs of God will shape your relationships with other people. So all your perspectives are affected by your beliefs. Your beliefs are the basis of godliness. That's why you you begin by renewing your thinking concerning who God is. That affects everything else. Everything else in the Christian walk. So number one, it's important to understand the God of the Bible because of idolatry. Number two, because it's the emphasis of Scripture, who God is. Number three, it's a key to all other beliefs. In other words, a key to theology. And then fourthly, those beliefs are the foundation to all that you do, all your life. The things that you prioritize, the things that you consider important, the things that you do with your children. And number five, it's the basis for worship. That goes all the way back to the first three, four commandments there. It's the basis of who you worship. There's a lot of worshipers out there. People in false religions worship all the time. They're worshiping a different God. In some cases, gods that are created by demons themselves. So it's the basis of God. We should worship, what does Jesus say, in what? In spirit. And, in other words, it's a spiritual endeavor, but in truth. And the truth concerning who God is. Truth concerning the nature of God. That is the source of true worship. And Jesus introduces this whole concept of worship to a woman that was in a distorted system. And she believes in him, in the Messiah, and it radically changes her to the point that she goes and tells everybody else. And it affected her lifestyle. She was an immoral woman. Now, we don't have the outcome in Scripture of her life, but you have kind of hints that her world was turned upside down. Okay? So the basis for worship, that John 4 passage I'm alluding to here. And sixthly, this is what God wants. God reveals himself so that we might know him, so that we may understand who he is and reorient everything else about our lives. And just a couple of scriptures. One, you might write down Hosea 6.6. It says, and God is speaking in Hosea through the prophet. He says, for I delight in loyalty rather than sacrifice and in the knowledge of God. God delights in the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. In other words, he could care less about what you're doing in relationship to understanding who he is. Because if you understand who he is, then that'll affect what you do. But if you start with what you do and neglect the knowledge of God, then everything else is distorted. See that in Hosea? Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24. Thus says the Lord, through the prophet here, let not a wise man boast of his wisdom. Forget about your PhDs. Forget about your training. 
Forget about your intellectual background. Forget about your usage of that information. So, let not a wise man boast in his wisdom. And let not the mighty man boast in his might. If you have a position of power, don't boast in it. Your ownership of that corporation or whatever. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not a rich man, you have a good bank account, you have a lot of investments. Don't boast in those investments. Not a rich man boast in his riches. But, let him who boasts, boast of this. If you want to boast, this is what you should do. That he understands and knows me. That's a source of rejoicing and boasting and proclaiming. That he understands me and that I am the Lord. In other words, that I am sovereign over all things. I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness. I am a God that has committed love. Hesed in this context is covenant love. In other words, it's a binding love. That's who God is. So God is not only love, but he binds himself and commits himself to love eternally. Also, a God who is a God of justice. He deals righteously. He deals justly. And righteousness on the earth. That is the God that God delights in if you understand who he is. And he just gives a few examples here of who he is. For I, it says, delight in these things, declares the Lord. God desires us to know him. And as you submit to him and what he has revealed, he opens up the scriptures so that you can understand them to better come into an understanding of him himself. An understanding of who God is. So that tells us why this whole area is important. Bottom line, God desires it. Now, let's conclude by looking at a few scriptures relating to a concept of scripture. One of the issues of scripture is the ability to know God. Now, most believers don't think about this, but it's a biblical concept which leads us to a concept that theologians describe as the incomprehensibility of God. And we won't get this far today, but I'll begin next week dealing with some other aspects of what it means in terms of understanding incomprehensibility of God. It does not mean that God is not knowable. That's different. The knowability of God is another issue. When we speak of the incomprehensibility of God, it tells us something about our ability to understand who God is. And when we say that God is incomprehensible, it's basically saying that you cannot set out and discover who God is on your own. You will never come to a biblical understand or a true understanding, an understanding of reality in terms of God. You will never arrive on your own. That's what we mean by the incomprehensibility of God. Because God is incomprehensible. So let's take a look at that, and that's basically where we'll end today. First of all, Job asked the question, chapter 11, verse 7, Can you discover the depths of God? What's the implied answer? No. And not only the depths of God, but God himself. Can you discover the limits of the Almighty? No. Why? The Bible teaches he's infinite. We're finite, so we have limited ability. 
So we'll never exhaust our understanding of who God is. And I believe that even when we go to be with Him and we are separated from these sinful bodies, even then we will not have a comprehensive understanding of God. In other words, we will not understand everything about God. We'll never reach the limits of the Almighty. Even in heaven when we go to be with Him. To do that would require omniscience of which we as creatures do not possess and will not possess. Omniscience is another perfection of God. In other words, God knows all things. Only He knows the limits. If you can even speak of limits. Because He's infinite. So this is the starting point here. The implied answer is to both those questions, no. Can you discover the depths of God? No. Can you discover the limits of the Almighty? No. Those are the implied answers to those questions. He is not exactly like anything or anybody that we know of. He is different. That's the holiness of God. He is different. So we could never have a concept of, a total concept of who God is. That's A.W. Tozer again. Some of the characteristics of the divine nature cannot be known by by a finite intelligence. That's what we mean by incomprehensibility. We don't have the capability to exhaust who God is. Make sense? That's W.G.T. Shedd, another old theologian. Psalm 169.6 Such knowledge, in other words, the knowledge of God, is too wonderful for me. And the idea here, it's, it's, it's too beyond my capability for me. It's beyond my finite limitations. Too wonderful. I can't even conceive of some things. Some things concerning God. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is too high. Too distant. Too distant in every dimension that you can think of. I cannot attain it. I don't have the capability of limiting or putting God in this box that defines Him. Cannot do it. All conceptions of God go beyond the limits of what we can conceive. Psalm 139.6 If you want a New Testament passage, Romans 11.33-36 Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. It is deep. Too deep for our finite minds. Paul goes on. How unsearchable. That's the incomprehensibility of God. You can't use science to understand God. In fact, if you're using any means, if you try to discover God through science, you're going to fail because science has limitations. In fact, science doesn't tell us anything about God. How unsearchable are his judgments, one aspect of who he is, and unfathomable his ways. Now, he's quoting from Isaiah, so this is an Old Testament concept. And Paul brings it in the New Testament. This is how he concludes his doctrine of justification by faith and how it relates to Israel, chapters 9 through 11. After going in great detail concerning this doctrine, he's saying this is just touching the surface of who God is in terms of his salvation, in terms of his relationship to man, because his ways are unsearchable. His wisdom and the knowledge of God are unsearchable. 
His judgments are unsearchable, unfathomable His ways. You cannot understand and conceive of what God is doing. You can't understand it in your own personal life, much less how God is working in somebody else. Or how God may be working in a broader basis in our country, or even beyond that in the world itself. Now, he's revealed much about what he's going to do, and we can put bits and pieces together, but we'll never exhaust it. We'll never totally understand it. That's what we mean by the incomprehensibility of God. Now, I'll give you some more verses next week. One more, Matthew eleven twenty-seven, And no one knows the Son. Why? Son is God. No one knows the Son except the Father. Nor does anyone know the Father, you don't know the Father, except the Son. Because they're both incomprehensible. And except the Son and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal Him. And that's the key. The way that we come into a biblical understanding of God always is through revelation. And that's the only means. Can't use psychology. You can't use rational thought to try to reason your way to understanding God. You can't use scientific techniques to understand and know God because it's outside. he's outside the scientific realm. He's transcendent, separate from the creation. What we need to understand the God of the Bible is revelation. And that's what Scripture does. And the Son is the main means of revelation. He exegetes God. John 1, 18. No man has seen God. Remember that verse? But the Son has exegeted the Father or reveals or explains or brings to light. So that's the key. So we are utterly dependent upon God's revelation to have a true concept to avoid idolatry, a true concept to understand who God is. And that's what we attempt to do when we expound the scriptures. Hopefully we did that as we looked at the book of Hebrews. And we'll, when we go back, go back to that issue. It's John 1, 18. Who wants to close for us today? Connie. Amen.